Genesis 2, 18-25 The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Across the developed world, marriage is becoming rarer. The overall percentage of people who choose never to marry is on the increase. And uh, even among those who do marry, they're marrying at a later and later stage of life. One example is in the U.S. In 2005, in the census, they found that uh, 50% of adult men between the ages of 25 and 34 were married. 50%. When they did that survey again in 2018, they found that 35% of men in that age bracket were married. Now that is a precipitous drop for such a short amount of time. And in the UK, while the overall birth rate has been declining for a long time now, the percentage of births outside of marriage has been increasing year on year. It currently stands at about 50%. About 50% of births take place outside of marriage. And of course, divorce rates remain high. Even here in Hong Kong, divorces are on the increase. And while that trend is nothing new in the Western world, uh, the news is that that is spreading out to the rest of the world now. According to a new book by Mark Regeneris, a U.S. sociologist, he has found in seven countries that he's studied that that a trend to either never marry or to delay marriage for a long time is becoming the norm in places like Nigeria and Mexico, in Lebanon and Russia and elsewhere. And according to Dr. Regeneris, it is a disaster. He calls it the social justice issue of our time. Because according to his research, when marriage declines, women and children suffer mental health deteriorates, um, crime increases, and the stability of society overall decreases. It turns out that the health of marriage as an institution is far more important for human flourishing uh, than we might have anticipated, and that is for whether we ourselves are married or not. Marriage is important. And as Christians, that is exactly what we should expect. Because we find here, right at the beginning of the Bible, as 
God is putting His good creation plan into place. A central part is played by marriage. It is fundamental to the human race's flourishing. In a sense, we've been seeing that Genesis gives us the, the key stage one material that we need to understand, to understand the world we live in, who we are, and God. And here, in Genesis 2, we have a sort of marriage 101, the, the building blocks that the rest of Scripture will go on to unfold and explain even more of. But here is the core of what marriage is. Even when Jesus was on earth and people asked him about marriage and divorce, uh, he pointed them back to this passage in Genesis 2 and said, Have you not read? If you had only read and understood this material, you wouldn't be asking such silly questions. And so, here we have uh, the essential material on marriage. And we'll do well to play co pay close attention. So as we look at this morning's reading together, I'm just going to uh, look at it under three headings. And uh, the first is the purpose of marriage, then the pattern of marriage, then the practice of marriage. And that's where we're headed. So first, the purpose of marriage. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, you'll know that we've been working our way through the early chapters of Genesis, and uh, we've been finding there God's plan for life, the world, and everything, uh, his creation plan. And if you've missed some of those sermons, it's worth going back and listening to them because they give the context of what I'm going to be speaking about today and of uh, all, really, of Christian teaching. They give the foundational um, understanding needed. Now, back in chapter 1, we saw that at the pinnacle of creation, at the end of day 6, God created mankind. He made us in his image, male and female. He created us. And he, he gave us, as his image bearers, a special role to play in his creation. We were to uh, rule the world that he put us in. And our God-given task as image bearers could only take place as we fill the world and subdue it. Uh, humanity was to represent God to the world he had placed them into and rule over it as he would. And then in chapter 2, we saw that the way that humanity rules over the world that God has made us uh, the rulers of is through working and through keeping it, through um, holding chaos at bay, bringing chaos into order and uh, cultivating the world around us, making it flourish like a garden. But even with that high calling, even in uh, the perfect garden that God had placed us in as image bearers of his, even with all of that, we find a surprise in verse 18. For the first time in history, God declares something is not good. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, what is it that God declares not good in his perfect creation? It's the fact that uh, man was alone in his work without help. God had created this vast and amazing planet for him to, to fill and subdue, but however 
capable Adam was, no man could fill and subdue the earth on his own. However industrious he was, he could not work and keep the entire planet. He needed help to fulfill his God-given duty. And therefore woman was created and ultimately marriage was given in the context of work. Do you see? Men and women were created to be co-workers and partners. Now consider for a moment how very different that is to the message of most fairy tales, most Hollywood dramas, most uh, K-dramas that you watch on television where marriage is presented as the end goal of the story. Now the man works hard to win the heart of the woman and they're kept in, we're kept in suspense and, and waiting, wondering will they or won't they and then finally at the end all the drama uh, and suspense end and they get married and it's happily ever after. The end. All our stories end at marriage. But in the story that God tells about humanity, it begins with marriage. Marriage is given at the beginning as a means to an even greater end. It's an institution that allows uh, mankind to more effectively do the work that God has given us to do. It is integral to God's plan for creation. And marriage is given as a means of equipping and enabling us for the work that God has called us to, to make this planet flourish. Uh, work is hard and marriage is hard. If you, as you listen to this, are out there and you're unsure whether you should stay in your marriage or maybe you're, you're dating somebody and you're wondering, should I marry this person? Well, keep in mind this purpose of marriage. It's not an end to some romantic story. It's not a means of self-actualization. It's, it's not um, the capstone of a successful young adulthood. Now, marriage is given in order to help you do your God-given work, in order to help your spouse do their God-given work. And it should be used as such. It should be seen as such. Is it any wonder, therefore, when we look out into the world that we live in, uh, we find that those who marry and who stay married tend to, on average, flourish more than those who don't? Now, marriage tends to lead to better economic circumstances, to longer, healthier lives, to uh, better mental health, a greater overall happiness, and that's just for the couple themselves. But when we add children into the equation, well, the, the results of marriage are overwhelming. Children who are raised by a married mother and father have better outcomes across every single indicator uh, that we can measure. Higher academic performance, better mental health, better job prospects, less likely to abuse substances or commit crimes, more likely uh, to attend church, and, and so on and so forth. No other single factor in human life is as important to the flourishing of both single people and married people than marriage as an institution. Uh, when people, when men and women marry and stay married, it results in flourishing. So the benefits 
uh, are for the whole world, Christian and non-Christian alike. But what particular benefits does marriage have for Christian people? Well, marriage is used by God to grow us in godliness. He sanctifies us through it. it marriage is used to provide a, a stable environment for raising and discipling our children in fear and knowledge of the Lord. And marriage provides a foundation upon which uh, we can welcome others in and serve other people, especially those who don't have a, a nuclear family to depend upon, whether it's single people in, in our congregation or uh, widows and orphans who otherwise have no one to turn to. Uh, uh, the marriage relationship provides a foundation upon which we can serve them. Now, before we move on, though, it is important to say, and I just want to make clear, that while marriage is given for the overall benefit of humanity, it is not the Christian expectation that every single person will marry. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was perfectly fulfilled in his life, and he never married. And he was godly, of course. Now, Paul pointed out that in this fallen world, marriage can very often be a distraction from serving the Lord. And so he recommended that uh, those who were able not marry so that they could better serve the Lord. A good, proper, biblical understanding of marriage sees it as a, a good and honorable thing to be married, but it is not the expectation that everyone get married. That's not the standard of godliness. And if we make it that, then we err. Married or single, God still calls us to do His work in this world. And so that is the purpose of marriage, and now we come to the pattern of marriage. Before we enter into it, I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, what we find here, I think, could be perceived as offensive to the wider world. But if the God who created everything, including men and women and marriage itself, uh, is speaking through these verses in Genesis, we do well to pay attention and to um, take notice because our Creator knows far better than we do what it will take for our flourishing in this world that He's created. And I think we can summarize what these verses teach us about God's intended pattern for marriage in two statements. The first is this, marriage unites equal partners. Marriage unites equal partners. Already in Genesis 1, we saw that uh, God created humanity in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. In contrast to many cultures in the ancient Near East, and in contrast to many cultures even to this day, men and women are seen as fundamentally equal before God. And as we, we come to the fuller story of creation in uh, Genesis 2 here, as we see the woman first formed, we find that equality affirmed again. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. A man was formed with soil and with God's breath, and that gave him life. 
but woman was built out of the rib of man. Now, she wasn't some sort of alternate um, or rival creation. Now, she was made of the very same stuff as Adam was. Now, she is the same stuff as man. And she wasn't taken from his head to show that she's superior, and, and she wasn't taken from his feet to show that she's inferior, but she was taken from his side to show that she is equal. All that means that husbands and wives are fundamentally equal partners in marriage. Cultures where women are treated as less than men, uh, where they are forced to walk uh, five paces behind their husbands or, or forced to uh, endure domestic violence or even uh, forced to be subject to sexual exploitation on screens uh, around the place. Those sorts of cultures are sinful and sub-Christian. There is no room for misogyny in the church or in Christian marriage. And Christians ought to oppose the degradation of women, or in, indeed of men, uh, wherever we find it, uh, we ought to oppose that, because men and women are equal image bearers of God. So that's the first thing. The, the second thing I think we find in these verses is that marriage unites complementary opposites. Over and over in the first two chapters of Genesis, we see God creating the world and bringing it forth and declaring it good. Light and dark, he calls good. Land and sea, he calls good. Plants and animals, he calls good. In all of creation, everything has its complementary pair, which completes it, except for man. And for the first time, God says in verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. Something had to change. Man needed his complementary pair to complete him, a helper suitable for him, as our translation has it. Now, the Hebrew there is ezer kenegdo, which it could be translated very woodenly as a helper, a helper like opposite to him. A helper like opposite him, ezer or helper, it isn't a derogatory or a diminutive term. Most often throughout Scripture, it's a term used of God himself. It means somebody who comes to the aid of someone else or uh, who assists them. And God is constantly coming to the aid of his people and assisting them. Konegdo, or like opposite, it has a sort of um, complementarity built into the term itself, doesn't it? Uh, she is someone who is like him, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he cries out. Uh, but she is opposite to him. Uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, she um, is a complementary, in a complementary way different to the man. The gendered complementarity of humanity makes what was incomplete and not good into something that is very good, according to God. And so what does that tell us about the complementarity of marriage? Well, certainly there is a biological element at play here, and, and we don't want to ignore that. Um, it takes 
a, a complementary sexual coupling to produce offspring, to fill the earth. Um, and that's certainly a part, but I think it goes even beyond that. And I think we have good reason to think it goes beyond that. We see in Genesis 2 that a husband and wife um, have different parts to play in their joint work of ruling and subduing the earth. The man, he was already engaged in his work, and God created the woman to help him in it. The man was formed first, and the woman was formed out of him. Now, God brought the newly created helpmeet to the man, and the man names her woman. God gave the man the moral law. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man was expected to then teach that to his wife and show her how to obey God. Now, all of those elements together begin forming a picture that I think is developed as Scripture unfolds in the uh, subsequent books. God has given a different and complementary role to men and women. And we might summarize that difference in this way. Husbands have a special responsibility to lead, and wives have a responsibility uh, to accept their husband's lead and to partner with him. Now, some, I think some in our world might take offense at that idea. Some women might think it's oppressive for wives to have to submit to their husband's leadership. And I think some men might think it is a great burden to have to lead their wives and their families. It's a big responsibility. But every organization, every sports team has a structure that helps it to flourish. And God's intended structure for marriage, I think we see from these verses, is one of male leadership and female support. Now, uh, once we see those gender differences, uh, those gender roles of marriage taught in Scripture, it is very easy then to get carried away and, and to make all sorts of assumptions about who should work outside the home and who should do the cooking and, and so on and so forth. But I think a lot of that is cultural rather than biblical. Once the basic building blocks of gender difference are there, uh, there are all sorts of possible ways forward. Uh, ways that you can work that out. So uh, part of being a good leader is understanding the gifts and abilities of those you lead and allowing them to uh, deploy those gifts and abilities for the benefit of the overall uh, organization. And that's true of good male leadership in a marriage. You'll see what your wife is capable of and, and good at and you will help her to use those gifts uh, for the good of the family. And part of being a good supporter is feeding into decisions and um, helping the leader to see different angles, but allowing him to, in the end, lead and to make the decisions and supporting him through it. And that is a picture of uh, a uh, healthy way for husbands and wives to operate. In a well-ordered marriage, the Complementary gender roles lead to a greater flourishing. 
But as we'll see in Genesis 3, when sin enters the picture and enters the world, marriage becomes disordered. And what is meant to help us to flourish begins to create conflict. Uh, but that is a topic for a coming week. So marriage necessarily involves bringing together equal and opposite partners. Men and women are not simply interchangeable in their roles or their functions in a marriage. Just as biological difference is necessary to fulfill God's command to fill the earth, so other complementary differences are necessary uh, in order to fulfill his command to subdue the earth and, and to rule over it. So that's the pattern of marriage. We've seen the purpose, the pattern, and now we come to the practice, the practice of a well-ordered marriage. What does it look like when a man and a woman take God's intention for marriage seriously? Well, in verse 24, we have a sort of narrative aside by the author of Genesis as he uh, comes out of the story that he's telling and turns to us as readers, he says this in verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Here, I, I just want to point out three things from this verse about the practice of marriage. The first is that marriage is exclusive. Now, of course, we know in one sense uh, that marriage is exclusive. We know it's meant to be sexually exclusive, despite attempts at open marriages or, or polygamy in the past. That, those were always foolish departures from God's intention for marriage. Um, a marriage is supposed to be exclusive, though, in more than just that narrow sense. It, it's meant to become the primary relationship of the couple. And that's what it means when the uh, author of Genesis says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. Marriage is meant to become the primary relationship. All our other loyalties, all our other relationships are meant to take a back seat to our marriage partnership. Now, some cultures find that difficult because they elevate the parents of one spouse or another uh, over the, the marriage relationship itself. And, and so the mother-in-law, whatever she says, is what's done rather than uh, what the wife thinks. And uh, hence all the jokes about mothers-in-law. Uh, or in some cultures, it's the child. Maybe the son gets elevated over the, the husband in, in the relationship. And uh, that is wrong according to Scripture. The primary relationship is meant to be the marriage relationship. I think in other cultures, we maybe don't elevate other members of our family over our partner, but we elevate our friends over our partner. And so we go to them with um, our problems with our spouse. We, we allow them to cause friction in our relationships. And uh, that is, again, wrong according to Scripture. From the Christian perspective, as important as other family relationships are, as important as friendships are, marriage is primary. All those other relationships are meant to take a distant second place to our partner in, in marriage. So marriage is exclusive. Marriage creates one new thing out of two. Now, the reason a man leaves his father and mother is so that he could be united to his wife. As the old 
translations have it. You leave in order to cleave to your spouse. In a very real sense, then, there's no longer an individual man and woman. No, they become one new thing as they come together in marriage, one flesh. Uh, certainly, in a, in a sexual sense, that's true, and that literally produces one new life out of two, but not only in that sense. Surely, if, if you're married, you'll have noticed, as I have, that the other person rubs off on you. Uh, your tastes, your humor, your perspectives in life begins to reflect something of them. Uh, you're not the same individuals that you were before you were married, and that's how it's meant to be, because you've become something new in marriage. And thirdly, marriage is permanent. Married couples are one flesh, because this union is so strong, it cannot be broken without mutilation. Uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually, you're united as one. And that's why divorce is so painful. And not just to the couple, but to the people around them. Uh, some research suggests that divorce can be contagious in, in that uh, when one marriage breaks down, it becomes easier for those around that marriage uh, to break down. Uh, the pain spreads. So many in our culture, they think that, especially when they grow weary of their spouse, that it's the, the uh, easiest option, the the best option to divorce in a, a quick and easy way. But of course, if what the Bible teaches about marriage is true, uh, that is always a profoundly painful process. It's a self-mutilation of sorts, and it causes serious damage. Now, I'm very aware that some listening to this will have been divorced themselves. And to you, I want to say, uh, you, I don't need to explain to you the pain of it. You'll know that all too well firsthand. And, and my goal in speaking about it isn't to condemn you. It, it isn't to reopen old wounds. It's to help those who are married out there and who are thinking, can I really do this? Should I really stay in this? Uh, is to help them to say, yes, this is God's will. Now, there are very few reasons given in Scripture why uh, we are able to divorce. Very few. The overriding principle is uh, what God has brought together, as Jesus says, let no man uh, tear asunder or take apart. Uh, and so I want to encourage you, if you're struggling in your marriage, to stick with it and to seek help, maybe even seek help uh, in speaking to me. I'd love to, to come and pray with you, to talk with you, maybe even uh, to counsel you and your spouse. But what is the goal? Say that we are living this way, we, we have an exclusive marriage, we, we're united in our marriage, we're committed to the permanency of marriage. What does that give us? Well, it gives us, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It's a relationship of total vulnerability with total security. 
a relationship where you are known by the other person, where blemishes and all, but where you are loved completely. That's the beautiful result of marriage at its best. And as the story of Scripture unfolds, we see that marriage is supposed to be a living, breathing model of how God relates to his people. After Paul quotes uh, Genesis 2, verse 24, in his letter to the Ephesians, he says this, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Jesus Christ loves and leads his church as a husband ought to love and lead his wife. And if we honor marriage, if we live it out as God intended, we show the world even more clearly how very good it is to be in a covenant relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We're bearing His image in our marriages as we live the way He's called us to live. But it's a high calling. So allow me to pray for you and for all the marriages of our church. Father, we thank you for this wonderful teaching about marriage in Genesis 2. We see how many facets it has, how glorious it is, and how high the calling is. And we feel very inadequate to it. We look at our own marriages and we think, is that really what's going on here? How can I really say those things about my own marriage? And so we need your help. I pray that you would send your spirit to the marriages of Resurrection Church and uh, that you would bring healing and that you would bring comfort and that you would uh, help us to love one another as we ought to. Help us to work together as we ought to. Help us to display something of your image to this broken world that we live in as we relate to our spouses in the way you called us to. And Father, for those who are not married or or um, not wanting to be married. I pray that uh, you would use them and minister to them in all the ways uh, that they need. Help them to uh, live effectively for you in their singleness, to work for you in an undistracted way. And we pray that you would surround them with many people who uh, love and care for them in their wider family in the church. So we pray for your blessing on all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.